feelings podcast about movies. Today we are talking about Boogie Nights with Nona Willis Aronowitz. I am one of your hosts, Alex Steed. I will soon be joined by my tremendous co-host, Sarah Marshall. Boogie Nights, of course, is a 1997 American period comedy drama film written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It is set in Los Angeles's San Fernando Valley and focuses on a young nightclub dishwasher who becomes a popular star of pornographic films, chronicling his rise in the golden age of porn of the 1970s through his fall during the excesses of the 1980s. Did I read this description straight from Wikipedia? You bet I did. Our guest again is Nona Willis Aronowitz, the author of Bad Sex, Truth, Pleasure, and An Unfinished Revolution. Nona joined Sarah on You're Wrong About a handful of months ago to uh, to talk about porn. And so in a way, we are continuing that conversation here. Go check out that episode if you have not heard it already. It is great. You can support You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies by uh, checking us out on Patreon or subscribing via Apple subscriptions. If you do that, you get bonus episodes in December. Our bonus episode is going to be about mixed nuts. Thank you so much to everyone who does support us on Patreon and Apple subscriptions. It really helps a lot. It makes the show possible. It pays the vast majority of our bills. Uh, it, It makes this our job. And we really appreciate that. We appreciate you. We are glad that we get to do this. It is, it's truly an honor. So thank you. Thank you for everything. How are you doing, by the way? How's it going in your life? What's going on out there? You can find us on Twitter for the time being. Who knows what's happening over there at twitter.com slash you are good pod. You can find us on Instagram at you are good pod. I've been making a lot more reels on Instagram lately. If you're just like, oh, I need to see Alex's face and put a face with a voice. You can find uh, find that over at Instagram. I just want to remind you that you, my friend, are good. Take care of yourself as much as you can. And if there are things about this time that you enjoy, I hope that you're getting a heart full right now. So there are a handful of notes I have to offer before we jump into the actual episode. The first is a handful of trigger warnings. One is in regard to a conversation about racial violence we're going to have uh, right now in the introduction, and then later on in the episode. Another is uh, related to a series of uh, domestic abuse situations that take place in the movie, both in the home of the young protagonist, and then a murder-suicide that takes place in in the movie itself. So I just want you to know that that all is coming and uh, uh, just, you know, go into the episode knowing this. And then finally, we talk about Mark Wahlberg's history of racial and racist violence that Mark Wahlberg has had an interesting history with throughout his life. And it comes up in the context of both just acknowledging that that happened and in the context of being like, he plays this character I find extraordinarily sympathetic and I have trouble reconciling that. So I just want to offer some context by offering the details of those cases. I didn't have those on hand when we had the conversation itself. 
In June of 1986, when Mark Wahlberg was 15 years old, he and some friends chased down uh, three black children while yelling, kill the N-word, kill the N-word, and throwing rocks at them. The next day, Wahlberg and others did basically the same exact thing. One of the kids that he followed in this incident was one of the kids from the prior day. They summoned other white males uh, to join in on the harassment. Uh, The following year, a civil action was filed against Wahlberg for violating the civil rights of the victims in the case was settled uh, the next month. In 1988, when Wahlberg is 16, he assaulted a middle-aged Vietnamese-American man on the street, calling him a number of unsettling things related to uh, the man's nationality. Later that day, he assaulted another Vietnamese-American man, Johnny Trinh. Wahlberg later explained that he was on PCP at the time. He was charged with attempted murder, pleaded guilty to felony assault, and was sentenced to two years of jail, but only served 45 days of his sentence. Wahlberg had believed that he'd left the second victim permanently blind in one eye, although uh, Johnny Trin, the victim, later said that he'd lost his eye in the Vietnam War while he was serving in the South Vietnamese Army, who were fighting alongside American troops. This case is fascinating for a number of reasons, um, largely because it kept coming up throughout Wahlberg's career because he had tried to apply for a pardon in 2014. It opened up a conversation about redemption and who can be redeemed and who cannot be redeemed and who is able to access that sort of redemption, who is not. Judith Beals, who'd been the prosecutor in some of the cases, argued that Wahlberg had never acknowledged the racial nature of his crimes and that pardoning Wahlberg would undermine his charity work, saying a formal public pardon would highlight all too clearly that if you're a white in a movie star, a different standard applies. In 2016, while requesting the pardon for his conviction on the assault on Trin, Wahlberg said that he'd met with Trin and apologized for the horrific acts. Trin then released a public statement forgiving Wahlberg. Uh, Not great, but these are things that come up and I wanted to make sure that you had all of the details uh, that you needed. And again, the ongoing saga of Mark Wahlberg's relationship with these crimes in the context of the rest of his career and his public image are themselves fascinating and it's worth uh, looking into if you're interested in knowing more about that sort of thing. All right, let's get into it. Let's get into this episode of Boogie Nights, which is a lot, uh, for the most part, lighter hearted than everything I had to say about Mark Wahlberg just now. All right, let's do this. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. A good porno day to you. A good porno day to you. So, so Sarah, we're this movie today that we are uh, we are talking about. Thank God. Yes. So, sir, we will already have had our Thanksgiving episode out, which is not like explicitly Thanksgiving, but it is Thanksgiving. Yeah. Well, I've talked about well, I've talked about Rushmore, and this is our bridge from Thanksgiving into the Christmas and New Year's season, and the Happy Holidays War on Christmas season. Absolutely. And and why do you think? Before we get into it and before we introduce our guests, why do you think Boogie Nights serves as a good bridge for that season? Well, okay, we will get later into all the complicated reasons why I think this is true. But for now, I'll just tell you my reaction when you said we should do Boogie Nights to start the holiday season. And I was like, of course, there are Christmas donuts in it. 
<laughs> that's, per- that's perfect. That's perfect. And Sarah, who are we fortunate enough to have discussing this fine American classic with us? We are here today with porn scholar queen, Nona Willis Aronowitz. Hello, hello. Hi, I'm so excited to talk about this movie. Hello, Nona. And you you two have talked about porn before. At great length, yeah, while I was sitting in a parked car because I was mid-road <laughs> trip and we had to get it done and I was like, I can't, I, yeah, no, it was a McDonald's somewhere in Colorado. Was Nona just a drifter? And she was like, I'd love to talk with you I about porn. I wish, yeah, lot. she was a phantom <laughs> hitchhiker and then I arrived in this small town and I was like, I'm looking for a feminist porn scholar and they were like, that feminist porn scholar's been dead for 20 years. <laughs> Wait, I thought this was the Thanksgiving episode, not the Halloween episode. <laughs> it's all, they're all a little bit Halloween-y. It's all 15% Halloween. We are millennials. <laughs> um, it's kind of ironic that you call me the porn scholar queen because I don't actually write that much about porn, but I just happen to know a ton about this period because I wrote my college thesis on 1970s porn and the sexual revolution. I wrote my college thesis on Jane Eyre. I really fucked up. (laughs) It was really like a calling card. Like I would go to a party and be like, by the way, I'm writing my college thesis on porn. (laughs) I have not thought about my college thesis, I think, uh, since I wrote it. But mine was about iced tea in the L.A. riots. That's pretty cool. That's me. That's definitely cool. That's amazing. These are all like pretty good personality descriptors as far as I can tell. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely. No, no, before before Sarah dives in and walks us through the plot of Boogie Nights, can you tell us just what your relationship is with this movie, why it's one that uh, is interesting to you? Absolutely. So I was born in 1984 when this movie came out. I was, I don't know, 13 or something, but I didn't see it till I was 15. And I actually saw it on the night that I first had sex for the first time. Wow. wow. That's amazing. What a themed night. Before or after? Before. There were a bunch of people in my, at my house. I had like a free crib and people were like, let's watch Boogie Nights. <laughs> and then and then I had this like planned sex with my then kind of boyfriend. It's close to my heart that way. But I think it actually sparked my interest in 1970s porn in this kind of golden era. And I remembered it. And then when I got to college, I wrote my college thesis on the golden age of porn. And I was actually roller girl for Halloween at one point. Amazing. Along the lines of your relationship to this movie as unintentional foreplay, this was the first movie I saw on a date, but it was one of those dates where it was like, I went with the girl I was interested in and brought a friend also. So it was like, there was enough plausible deniability of it being a date. To make it as confusing as possible for the girl. We did that for sure. And we all went into this strongly under the impression that it was a movie about nightclubs. And you were like, that sounds great. Yeah, so we were like, because like I think Fifty Four had either just come out or was being advertised. Well, like, that some, makes sense. Like, that makes sense. And you're like, these things come in pairs. Come on, it's the '90s. Totally, totally. It was very awkward uh, uh-huh. to see in oh that God, setting. Absolutely. But I loved it so much. Like this was the first movie I saw in the theater by choice that I was just 
head over heels in love with wow. and was like, ah, uh, it gets it. It gets it. Cool. I think that was how I felt about Titanic. So the point <laughs> of this is that 1997 was just an eventful year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to take us on a journey? So Boogie Nights is two and a half hours long. And because my inability to synopsize a film in less than an hour has honestly become a real issue. <laughs> I actually took very careful notes while watching this and I had broken the film down into 10 acts. Oh, wow. Okay, so here, here are our acts. There's act one, Torrance, which is everybody's origins. Act one, we meet a bunch of our main characters going into Luis Guzman's nightclub, The Boogie Nights or something. What is his nightclub called? I assumed that it was Boogie Nights. I don't know why. Yeah, but then we look at another sign later and I was like, is that the name of the club? But anyway. I have not considered the fact that the club is actually called Boogie Nights. My misconception about this being a nightclub movie, it, as a framing device, it is an entirely a nightclub movie. I truly thought that, yeah. Totally. You were right. There was just so much more. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like saying that a hoagie is about bread. And it's like, that's somewhat true. Yeah, thank you. So Jack Horner, played by Burt Reynolds in a comeback role that he personally hated comes into the club with amber waves played by julianne moore we meet roller girl played by heather graham and jack decides to take a look at this beautiful young 17 year old busboy played by mark Wahlberg, and like realizes that this guy has an already local legend big dick that people are paying to look at or to watch him jerk off and he's like, well, that's promising because I am a pornographer and I strive to make films with acting and genre and to do something important. And so Jack Horner investigates. He finds out that, yes, Mark Wahlberg's character is truly gifted. And at the same time, we see Mark Wahlberg's terrible home life. So basically, I think what this opening act does is establishes our world and also shows us how the circumstances of our various characters' lives are making porn the safe place. Mark Wahlberg, he runs into Jack's arms and then they rechristen him Dirk Diggler. And he sets about becoming a star. So the next act is a pool party where we meet more people in the porn world, including John C. Riley, who's playing every John C. Riley character. Whether it's <laughs> Step Brothers or an odd here film, he's the same. <laughs> He just came out in this role and was like, this is, I mean, I know he was in Heart 8, but he came out in this role and was like, this is just how I'm going to be in every movie you ever see from here. Yeah. <laughs> and it always fits. It's like, hey, anybody got a bassoon? There's a bassoon. And we meet other characters, including Buck Swope, who is, I think, is my favorite character, played by Don Cheadle who is like attached to a cowboy look. And he's like, cowboys are going to come back. And you know what? They did. Urban cowboy. Boom. <laughs> <laughs> Act three, we watch Dirk making his first movie with Julianne Moore with, I believe, lighting design done by Ricky Jay, which is incredible. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and so we watch Mark Wahlberg as Dirk Diggler and Julianne Moore as Amber Waves have this, you know, within a porn shoot, like very ultimately tender, I would say, sex scene because they have a very interesting bond, the whole movie, which we will spend plenty of time talking about. 
And then she's like, you can come inside me. It's fine. And so he does. And then they're like, fuck, we didn't get the cum shot. We didn't get the money shot. Yeah, that was a really weird move. I didn't understand why she did that. Like, you know, she knows that film is not cheap. Yeah, well, there's like, I mean, there's a handful of things about that. First of all, that she says, come in me, I'm fixed is in my brain for the rest of my life. Second, that that Jack, the director, needs to be informed by his assistant director (laughs) that they didn't get like the most important thing that happens in a poor... Like, mm-hmm. wasn't he watching? Totally, like he was right. He's he's in the front row. Exactly. <laughs> I like that everyone has admitted forever that men love watching each other come. It's not gay or anything. <laughs> they just do. Yeah. Yeah. It's like. And also, if you're the director, that's your literal job. I love this sex scene because on one hand, it's very tender. And I actually found it very hot, especially at the time. Not so mm-hmm. much this time. But I also think that Julianne Moore did a great job of of having sort of like cinematic moans rather than real moans. Like she's yes. obviously a terrible actress and she and she's like trying to make it hot, even if it is like actually tender. She's also giving it another dimension of like falseness, you know, mm-hmm. their audio track is not synced. There's like a fun like all this is about movie making in one way or another, obviously, and like they're using the audio track they'll eventually use to dub over this to like for us to experience the weird audio that they're using, which is a very bizarre choice. Mm -hmm. And I agree, like the moans that she uses are like perfect for this character, but are also like overlaid on this scene. So it's like even one more step surreal. Mm. Yes. Good point. Yeah. So we have the the shooting of that initial film. And after they miss the cum shot, Dirk is like, he says, I could do it again if you need a close up. And it's like, bing, you know, like <laughs> this is our this is the Judy Garland story. It's like you you show up and you can just do without thinking about it. The thing that everyone's like, how does he do that? He's worth his dick's weight in gold. That's right. Yes. And his dick weighs a lot because it's 13 inches long, <laughs> which I this could get us into a whole conversation about the mean median and mode of like vagina depths, but like 13 inches <laughs> is not a sexy phrase to me. That's an intimidating phrase. Yeah. That's like 20 minute fuck challenge. Yeah. That's more sort of like an, an, an aesthetic quality than like an actual. Um, right. It's, it's for looking at. It's not for playing with. It's like a chihuly. It's not that practical. <laughs> I'm already in my mind on the receiving end of the social media comments being like, I'd love it. I would love it. Like, I know for a fact we're going to get testimony. Well, of course, I, I know that like there have to be some huge number of people who love a huge dick, you know, but I would argue that there is a larger number that is scared of a huge dick. <laughs> <laughs> Or is like, may I have half of it, please? Can I have half? Yeah, it reminds me of that guy in Sex and the City that was too big even for Samantha. And she just like... Mr. Cocky. Mr. Cocky, who just like kind of was like sad because, you know, he didn't have the fulfilling sex life that you might think he had because he had a nice big dick. And also, of course, Joe Manganiello in Magic Mike XXL. Right. Who finds his his magic slipper, his Cinderella slipper yeah. or whatever they call it. And Andy, Andy McDowell. McDowell, exactly. <laughs> That's amazing. I didn't realize. I didn't know that. That's great, Alex. It's one of the best movies ever made. Maybe we should do the series for a bonus. Of course, we should. <laughs> okay, so we make our initial movie. Dirk is incredible, and then we have a little success shopping montage. Love it. 
I wrote down Bambi because I think Mark Wahlberg has incredible baby deer energy in the first hour of this movie. (laughs) Oh, he does. He does. And I like to this day often say, I'm going to fucking buy these. (laughs) (laughs) So, oh, and then he wins a bunch of basically adult film awards. I wrote down the producers because it's like the producers when Mel Brooks had to keep going up at the Tonys. And so now we get to full on stardom. It's 1978. Dirk has come up with a private detective or 007 type character who also does karate um, <laughs> that he will play called Brock Landers. And John C. Riley's character is Chest Rockwell. Love it. <laughs> and this is where he wins all the adult film awards, actually. He also is talking about how like he has a special gift and he's sharing it and he can like teach people how to have more satisfying sex and save relationships. You know, he's like, he's still a true believer in what he's doing, basically. A lot of pornographers at the time said stuff like that when they were getting interviewed by magazines. And they were right, I would say, right? I guess so. I mean... Somewhat right. Yeah, to, I, well, yeah, good point. Because you would have, like, women saying what actually gets them off more if that were your main goal. I think most of these movies were for men, very clearly. Right. And also not instructively so. They're like, just fucking pound her like veal. That should do it. <laughs> no, I actually, I mean, so, you know, as we talked about in the other podcast, Sarah, there was a more complicated narrative happening during this time yeah. where women's pleasure was ostensibly kind of sort of centered. But I don't really think that like many married couples were watching these together. There was the phenomenon of porno chic where people went to the theater just to like go to the theater because it was a fun thing to do. And also there were like instructional marriage manuals that bordered on porn. But I think it was a bit facetious that all these people were saying stuff like that. Although I think obviously Dirk is extremely sincere in this scene. I do fully and fundamentally believe that Dirk believes at this moment, Dirk still believes this. And he's still like 18 years old. At the beginning of this montage, he believes that. And at the end of the montage, he does not believe that. Yeah. <laughs> and it only took like a year. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, the dizzying success continues. He... We have this house tour. He buys a Corvette. He continues to have this relationship with Amber, which is complicated by the fact that she has lost custody of her kids and is doing a lot of coke about it. Act five. Hello, 80s. This I I like that two of the acts in my outline are just parties, just one long party scene. The end of 1979 New Year's Eve 1980 party in which several fateful things happen. Philip Baker Hall comes to the house and tells Jack about how the future is video and he has to stop being an auteur pornographer. Jesse, played by Melora Walters, my hero, gets together with Buck Swope, who is our cowboy guy who's lovely. They agree that sunsets, they love sunsets, but sunrises are better. <laughs> They're just real dummies. And I love that so much They're about lovely. them. Yeah. They're like affable dummies. They're all himbos <laughs> and bimbos. The ridge. Yeah. Totally. And she's a bad painter. It's great. So I bad. love it. So I love it so much. I love her paintings. They look like they were done by a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> but Mark Wahlberg is just so appreciative. He's like, thanks, Jesse. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, they're just to, and to your point, Sarah. Like they're they've entered the game, you know, so, some below the age of eighteen. Like they're just in suspended adolescence. You know? And it's some of adorable. them are in actual adolescence, right? Right. Everybody is like somebody's kid or somebody's mom. Right. Yeah. I mean, Dirk Diggler, aka Eddie Adams, was seventeen when this movie starts, and he's yeah. a baby. Right. Right. So much shit happens to him that it's like. And the years are so hard that it's easy to forget that he's like 24 when this movie ends. Yeah. So and then the other fateful events are that and Alex, you texted me. You're like, why did she do this? And I don't know. Amber is like, hey, Dirk, we've known each other for years. I love you so much. Do some cocaine. You have to right now. My question is, how did how was he in the porn industry for years and hanging out at Jack and Amber's for years and never did coke? And he acted like he had never even really seen it before. The storytelling is based on the idea that, like, as soon as you start doing coke, you develop a problem with it. And I feel like it's harder to tell the story that I think might be true for some performers who are working at the time where it's like sometimes you just like do a little coke. On set, and it's fine. And then, like, things take a turn for whatever reason after years of that. Yeah. And you know what else occurred to me is I don't really understand why the porn world and, like, the drug vibe went together because this is before Viagra. Like, there was nothing you could do Hmm. if, like, your dick didn't work. And there it's called coke dick for a reason like why would you touch that shit honestly yeah and also like there's you know coke vag too like it's just not conducive to a sexy what sex it, what does it do what happens to does it get do you, does your vagina get really dry yeah it just dries you out you know when you're yeah, like on wow. coke you're wow. so thirsty it's like the anti-sex drug <laughs> right the unspoken the semi-spoken thing is like it really does affect your performance you know what mind-altering substance is good for your dick? Mindfulness. That's <laughs> true. Mindfulness is great for the dick. Think about it. Yeah. Yeah, so we have our fateful 80s party, and the last fateful thing that happens is that little Bill, played by, what the fuck is his name? You know. Billy H. Macy. Billy H. Macy. Mr. Three Names over here. <laughs> so many people with three names. You got to have three names if you're going to make it in a Paul Thomas Anderson film. <laughs> and I haven't even mentioned this, but he keeps finding his wife fucking some guy. And she's like, go away, little Bill. You're embarrassing me. I'm busy fucking this guy. And so the third time that happens, rule of threes, at the stroke of midnight, he goes and gets a gun and shoots his wife and whoever she's fucking and himself. Trigger warning. It's too late for that. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, uh, and, and that's the start of the 80s. So we know what this movie thinks about the 80s, that the 80s are about death of everything we love. I really started to see some of Paul Thomas Anderson's turn of the century issues with women. I feel mm. like I really could see it a lot clearer now than certainly could have seen at 14 years old. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah, there's a lot to take in. It's very busy. It's like that bedspread, the karate one. The illustration of the relationship with the wife played by Nina Hartley and with Dirk Diggler's mom. Yes. Okay, we'll talk about this in the episode, I'm sure. The mom one I have no notes for, because I think terrifying mom is an underrepresented thing in film. It's always the dad, and there's sure plenty of terrifying dads to go around, but moms can fucking rip your heart out. That's why everyone remembers misery. Actually, as a new mom, this is like 
so this is so cliche, but I just feel like I saw it through a parent's eyes for the first time. And if I ever heard anyone talk to my kid like that, I would go ape shit on them. And instead he's just cowering in the bedroom saying nothing. And it's awful. I had a similar thought. I was like, I'm a coward, but you have that like super strength for your child, theoretically, where at least you can say shit you wouldn't have for yourself. By no means am I defending the character of the father, but like in trying to understand Paul Thomas Anderson's representation, I've certainly seen and been in proximity to many parent formations where what we're seeing here, right, is like we're seeing the dad hear her do her thing, which he's done enough to wear him down Mm -hmm. to the point where like he's like, I'm never going to engage anymore. Like now it's just between them. Oh, it's not unbelievable. How many of of that parent relationship have we seen up close and personal in our lives? Yeah, no, it's, it's not implausible we're just like it's just upsetting (laughs) but back to little bill for a second i thought this time around that was the dumbest worst part of this entire fucking movie yes same what is the point of it like what would happen if none of that happened right and also why are you killing yourself just leave your wife what are you doing well it's very star 80 I think that what hits me now that didn't when I was like 17 and was like, oh, my God, cinema is that like, yeah, this is just a very straightforward, no commentary on it as far as I can tell presentation of the like, kill your wife, annihilate everyone, kill everyone strain of like masculine violence, which I think is like very present in this country. And if you're going to tell that story, I don't know, you kind of should have something to say about it, maybe. That to me is what like draws my attention to his the mom relationship, like to, to his relationship with his mom is like if it was just one or the uh, well, if it was just the parent thing, I'd be like, oh, OK, like whatever, like he has a fucked up. Everyone has some fucked up thing, whatever. But like then paired with this, I'm like, no, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> And also the fact that Amber is like, I have to get you addicted to cocaine right now. Yeah, it's like it's a a lot of men being victimized by women who are out to to ruin their lives in a way where I was like, "Uh, okay, all right. So that's the start of the 80s. Hooray. We love the 80s so much now, but Boogie Nights hates the 80s. If the 80s hadn't happened, the 70s wouldn't have got, would have gone on forever. That's an MST3K thing. <laughs> so Little Bill committed a massacre. The future is video. Dirk's on coke now. But at least Jesse and Buck have gotten together. That's like the one positive thing that happens. We then have Act 6, The Roman Empire. There's a little documentary that Amber makes about Dirk, the colonel who has been financing all of Jack's films, goes to prison for child pornography possession. Becky, who I didn't mention, gets married to some guy and people are leaving the industry either because they got sent to prison or because they're moving to Bakersfield. Part seven, video. It's 1983. Dirk is doing meth. He's become rude to everybody where previously he was like a little bright eyed go getter. He can't get hard. Um, And then basically he has a showdown with Jack where he's like, you're not my dad. I don't need you. Fuck you. I'm going to storm away now. (laughs) And then he goes and tries to make it on his own with the song. You've got the touch. Part eight donuts. This is the act where Everything falls apart. Amber definitively loses custody of her kids in court. Simultaneously, 
Dirk is hustling and gets picked up by a guy who he thinks is going to pay him to watch jerk off. He can't jerk off. The guy's friends show up and gay bash him uh, is my read of that. And Amber and Jack are out driving around with a light guy, a guy with a big fucking light in the car, which I love. Roller girl and Jack. Roller girl and Jack. Excuse me. And so they go out and Jack is trying to interest himself in the video revolution by being like, we're going to make film history and pick up a random guy and roller girl's going to fuck her. And then they pick up one of her old classmates and one thing leads to another and they kick the shit out of him. I hate how much I looked like this guy in high school. <laughs> well, I didn't watch the scene and think of you. So that's something. Is that the same guy in the beginning who was like taunting her? Yes. I never knew. Totally. Blowjob Bobby. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and again, the only people who things improve for are Buck and Jesse, who stopped to go get some Christmas donuts. And a Tarantino-style shootout occurs where everyone gets shot during a robbery except Buck. And there's a bag of cash on the floor. And he can't get a loan because he's a pornographic actor. So he takes the money and runs. Like that great song. <laughs> Part nine, long way down, one last thing. <laughs> the Molina job where... So good. Dirk, his shady new buddy, and John C. Riley do... Uh, the Wonderland murders, basically, I guess. They go to Alfred Molina's house with some fake cocaine. They try and do a deal. There's a shootout. Dirk barely escapes. John C. Riley lives too, somehow. And then part 10, God only knows, the family is together again. And we have like another that we opened with a long tracking shot and we conclude with a long tracking shot through jack's house where dirk isn't there right no. in this like tracking shot moving through the house we don't see him which is like to me the sad part of this and i think this is actually an incredibly hopeful ending or an incredibly optimistic ending or something because it's like pretty much all these people have survived and they're all still together some of them seem to be in recovery i hope and then we bookend uh finally with dirk on set, still working, doing a Jack Horner production, I believe, doing a Miami Vice porn parody and psyching himself up and telling himself he's a star. And then finally, last shot in the movie, he takes his dick out. They show it. And I, I think it looks great. I think it, I'm convinced. I know it was a prosthetic, but I thought it looked great. Practical effects. The end. And that last scene is just straight out of Raging Bull. Oh my God, of course it is. Oh, wow, yeah. of course it is. Yeah. Just all Paul Thomas, it's all Paul Thomas Anderson's doing this whole movie. Tall Thomas like, Panderson, yeah. Tall Thomas Peterson. Just be like, I like this movie. Let's do a scene from it. Like that's, and I love that. I love it a lot about it. I yeah. loved this last scene more than I remembered. I love when he like has his cigarette and he's like, I'm going to be nice. And then he tries it again. He's like, yeah. I'm going to be nice. And he tries it again. He's like, I'm going to be nice. <laughs> like you really care about your craft. And I respect that. He does. He believe he's a believer. Yeah. I mean, he's just a very, very earnest, very, very stupid man. Oh, I love it. Yeah. With a special gift who like loves his big dick. Yeah. Everybody yeah. gets one special thing, as he says. 
in one of the montages when he's talking about the Brock Landers character, he's talking about how like that's just a character, mm-hmm. but his name is Dirk Diggler. Like totally. his name is itself just a character. And we're watching him be just a character, play just a character. Thinking about like identity while watching this movie, I think this was like the first time I thought so much about that, about he at some point consciously stops being Eddie Adams. There's that really cute scene where he's doing his first scene as Dirk Diggler. And he like asks Jack if he could refer to him as Dirk Diggler from now on. And now he's just another guy. And now he's just like a different guy. Yeah. Did any of that strike you? Or did you think of him not being Eddie Adams and then suddenly becoming this new guy? Oh, yeah, totally. And I also was struck by that moment because he's a character playing a character. I mean, really, I feel like this is a story about trying to outrun your trauma and being reborn by being like the king of something, the king of the giant cocks, and then how it catches up with you and you do a bunch of drugs and how ultimately it's it's, it's about trying to be loved and how like Dirk, interestingly, at the end of this movie is sitting alone in a room. So like we know he's survived and he's come back to the movies and come back into the fold in a way, but like he's depicted all by himself right it's like the bitterness that tempers the the sweetness of the that long tracking shot we've just watched yeah a little bit well and he's really the only one who hasn't changed all that much like he kind of Hmm. is this doing the same shit he's like still in movies he has this one special thing and he hasn't really moved beyond it Um, or he's sort of like gone full circle But I think that the significance of the name change is like a lot of people change their names when they, you know, when they like join families. And he I think he was like leaving Mm. his like abusive household behind and like joining Mm. this new family where you have to like I don't even think it was like he was a character like this is his new Mm -hmm. true self, you know. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think like I think like this movie could well obviously it would be ridiculous if it was called it, but this movie could easily be called Friendsgiving. Like it's like he leaves you know Yeah. He like leaves his his family obligations to go like hang out with like his new chosen family. Chosen family. And and they like become his family, which is super which is super nice. I was also thinking in the context of the fact that Elizabeth Holmes was, you know, sentenced for eleven years today. I I don't I sometimes don't know the difference between well I know the difference theoretically i don't know the difference in reality between a person being like i'm becoming more myself by being this other person and i'm settling into that versus i'm settling into a role and that role is like is protective or advantageous for me in some way and i think i was like extra conscious of that while watching like Elizabeth Holmes get sentenced to ultimately was like, I'm Elizabeth Holmes. Part of that is like a role. And part mm-hmm. of what I'm doing is like a performance. And and it's advi- like it's the most American thing I can possibly imagine is like, mm. I am this name of this thing. I can accomplish all of these things as the name of this thing. And it requires you buying into it and me buying into it in order for it to get pulled off. Yeah. I know I talk about this all the time, but it's like the episode of The Simpsons with Gabbo where there's like TV promos that are like, Gabbo, 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 Gabbo is coming. And no one has heard of Gabbo before. But I guess you just make it a thing by being like, you know, Gabbo. And then uh, Mr. Burns is like, look, Smithers, 
Garbo is coming. <laughs> Does Elizabeth Holmes have any relation to John Holmes? She wishes. I, I wish. yeah. That would be fantastic. <laughs> yeah. That would be the sweetest full circle. The specter of John Holmes just really looms large over this movie and not just because of the Wonderland murders. Yeah. He was this this like very kind of like young skinny guy with a big dick mm. and also was involved in a, in the Wonderland murders and that's like in some ways how the similarities end but then I saw like all these little like hmm. glimmers of and actually he's referenced in the movie so he does exist yeah. in this world which is interesting so we're not supposed to literally think that Dirk Diggler is John Holmes but there are a lot of a lot of similarities there are a lot of like little references to to real characters apparently like hmm. like that candid camera scene is sort of a knockoff of on the prowl that Jamie Gillis had apparently right. who hmm. Jamie Gillis is is one of the best of the era yeah he, yeah he he was the real deal he was sexy he was great and he had this I guess pet project and he got very hurt and upset when he realized that it was being parodied basically in this movie <laughs> I felt bad for him. so would he ride around in a car and look for strangers to have sex with I mean, I've never watched it, but it's the same concept. Yeah. All right. Again, like Nina Hartley, who plays the wife that got shot, was a porn star from the early 80s. Yeah. Like there's there's sort of like people from the, the world. And by the way, actually, I just I don't mean to like add on to the things that sell me on where Paul Thomas Anderson was psychically with women at this point. But <laughs> in the end scene where we do see where everyone's at, I've always loved the scene. I've always loved the scene. What What is the character's name? Who is the painter? Sorry. We see Jesse's painting of Little Bill covering the gu the gunshot hole from where he shot himself in front of everybody at yeah. the party. Oh, but there's no painting of Nina Hartley who was shot to death at the party. Like, yeah, because fuck women. They all must know her. They're like, oh, Little mm. Bill. It's like, what about his wife who he killed at the party? Anyway, sorry. Right. I guess, no, I do want to dwell on this because I do feel like it is asking you to buy the idea of like, you know, when your wife keeps fucking guys in front of you, you have to eventually kill everyone. And it's like, no, just like if you're not okay with that, just like end it and let her <laughs> whoever that's the law yeah or like it's the 70s man like why are you so possessive <laughs> there was an amazing like the one thing that was the truest to life having having at this point been in in like commercial video production forever long is little bill's exasperation with no one else taking the requirements of the shoot day seriously <laughs> <laughs> like and, and being like, are we shooting tomorrow? And he's like, let's think about like the day after the day after tomorrow. And he's like, I gotta, I gotta call the crew. I gotta get everyone. Like, mm -hmm. I loved how true to life him being a producer or like him being sort of like the producer on set and being extremely exacerbated. He that is the character I can most imagine snapping and killing somebody because you you are the babysitter of all of the like man children in your in your life. Yeah, you're holding everything very close. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> to be fair this is in context of porn and people watch other people fucking all the time and this is like a porn party so it's like not 
that crazy that she's fucking this guy right, in the driveway. Right, it's more that like he's miffed. Maybe little Bill is just in the wrong industry with the wrong exactly. wife. Yeah. I don't know. Like I just felt like this whole situation was just was so like unbelievably like why was he so 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 mad? Like why did he expect monogamy in the context of the porn industry like it was so weird to me i mean she wasn't very nice to him of course but let's be honest she was very rude yeah i mean you could fuck some guy in a driveway more nicely but it doesn't deserve the death penalty (laughs) (laughs) i'm imagining he met her and i don't this is not implied we know nothing about her i'm only taking this again from her being portrayed by nina hartley is like i'm guessing he met her in the industry yeah yeah or else they met some other way when they were both young and then they both started working there like that's possible but like of course he met her in the industry Totally. You think they'd have a conversation about their arrangement. I don't know. Yeah. And also just like if you just took this out, if you took this whole through line out, this movie would be a manageable length. Exactly. It would be like a 220, which is so different from a 231. You are totally right. Psychologically, that 11 minutes is a huge fucking deal. Yeah, it's like how Portlanders feel about crossing a brig. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have to say there, there were some men who like talked the talk of being part of counterculture and being part of the oh, sexual sure. revolution mm. and then were just like insanely yeah. jealous and couldn't handle themselves. But yeah. I highly doubt that Paul Thomas Anderson was like, was like getting that deep. I think he just wanted like a big moment, you know? I hear those guys are still around. <laughs> they <laughs> sure are. Sometimes you can hear them in the forest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, no. What do you love about this movie? Why is this a movie that, I mean, I we, we understand sort of the formative nature of you having seen it, but then you revisited it many, many times after. Why, why is that the case? Well, first of all, I love the performances. I think that Mark Wahlberg is just so tender and so vulnerable. And given that later he like really wasn't like that in most other movies and then like later became like a Christian and kind of like disavowed this movie. I really feel like Paul Thomas Anderson, I know Paul Thomas Anderson got him in this really raw and vulnerable state. And then like, of course, Burt Reynolds is like a national treasure and makes this whole movie work. And I just feel like everybody put their back into it. So that's number one. But like when I first saw this, I thought it was a classic story of like the rise and fall of this exciting moment in American history. And actually my partner Dom always calls it the Goodfellas of porn. Cause it's like about totally misfits on the fringes of society, but a very storied fringe of society. Hmm. And you sort of see them riding high. And they're also like, the through line is also like they're also kind of dumb like you know like the mafia guys are like ultimately kind of dumb and there's nice pop songs happening the whole time to tell you what feeling is going on right and like you know they're not smart but they have charisma and they have moxie and they're just doing it their own way and they have their own idea of the American dream and then it just all falls to pieces and I feel like when I saw this movie and like the years later I was just like so interested in it as an American story but then Then there's another layer of it, which is that once I learned about this period, I wondered and I 
feel like this is on purpose. Like Paul Thomas Anderson must know that 1977 is not actually the, it's the tail end of the golden era of porn. Like if he really wanted to talk about the golden era and like the major players, I think he would have made it like 1972 or something like that. Right around when Deep Throat came out and the Mitchell brothers and behind the green door. And it was all like truly happening in 1977. It was on the wane. And I feel like we're supposed to think that Jack Horner is a bit of like like a B-list porn director. He's not like one of these people that the New York Times is profiling. And he's like kind of a little late to the party. And the people that he gets as his protégés aren't like like national stars. Like, you know how like Dirk Diggler at one point when, when he's like hustling on the side of the road, the guy like doesn't even know who he is. You know, he's like, do you know who I am? He's like, no, I just want to see your dick. You know, you know, he's no Harry Reams. He's no Marilyn Chambers. He's no Linda Lovelace. Like he's kind of like a D-list star almost. And although that was not true for John Holmes, of course, but like when I learned that like these people are having their own like echo almost of the American dream that like gave it even another hmm. layer of like, it's actually like similar to like in some ways the Sopranos to, to go with the Goodfellas metaphor. Like the Goodfellas people were like the ones in New York. That was the center of the universe. And like the guys from Jersey, they're like totally just in their own little world and they're like a little less charismatic and they're a little less successful. And that's like what I love about Boogie Nights, that it's not actually telling the A-list story. It's telling the B-list story. That's great. I did some work for a guy who hired me to help this was like years ago, but hired to help put together a marketing campaign around his app. And he was an extreme, this guy, this guy in his day was a very like celebrated CEO. But by the time he was in app development, he insisted on putting the words .com in his app title. So like, it just kind of like shows like how like in touch once he was and how out of touch he was at, with regard to like what was going on in the moment that like reminds a little bit of where Jack is. Mm -hmm. Jack is like five years late to knowing that the industry is already on its way to a new thing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I've just out of the blue found myself obsessed with train spotting again. And I hadn't thought about it for, you know, 20 years prior and revisiting that movie, like not dissimilar to Paul Thomas Anderson being like, let's do Goodfellas of porn. Like that was like, <laughs> let's do Goodfellas of Scottish heroin. Like these are two ah. filmmakers that were like, let's, we love this movie that basically just happened. Let's make our own version. Of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. <laughs> Well, I rewatched Goodfellas recently and I thought it sucked. Like I was like, this is too, <laughs> this is too earnest. Like they, unlike Paul Thomas Anderson, who's like ribbing these characters and like kind of knows that they're like a little silly and a little like vacuous. Scorsese was like too worshipful of these like dumbass characters, you know, like he. Yeah, it's kind of like, I mean, I love Goodfellas, but I agree. It's kind of like Interview with a Vampire in that way, where it's like, you know, this is not the most glamorous thing on earth. I love that movie so much. I, it didn't actually suck, but I just, the framing was like a little off. Like it should have like made a little bit more fun of the whole thing. That's so funny because my, my read on that is like, I, I agree, but like I read the earnestness of like, it makes it like the ultimate irony. 
I think that like he believes that these people are losers. But it's like, what a great loser. Oh, right. Totally. Him painting it so earnestly, like without ever winking. I'm so glad he doesn't wink because I don't know that Martin Scorsese knows how to wink. Catholics don't wink. Obviously, that was lost on me because I thought that he like thought they were so awesome. Oh, I think he thinks that they're fucking scumbags, <laughs> but he likes he likes their shoes. <laughs> I think the fact that we have two opposite positions and I really couldn't confidently vote on either as far as authorial intent goes is like that's cinema baby (laughs) I actually thought Boogie Nights was super super earnest when I first saw it like I was like these people are the coolest like I want to be in this world like Roller Girl is awesome it so I do actually think he loves these characters but I think when I saw it in high school I took it a lot more earnestly than same like yeah. every time I see it, I see I see more and more that he's kind of like gently making fun of them. And I think like this is all like this is all at the end of the day, just like a metaphor for film. Right. Like this. Like I, I think he cares about porn, but like I think he's talking about the end of the 70s movement oh, of, of, course. of American filmmaking and what happened in the 80s with video. Hmm. That didn't occur to me. But yeah, in the end of uh, auteurism, basically. Oh, wow. I didn't realize that it was like about filmmaking. I mean, I could see like a nerd like Paul Thomas Anderson doing that. Also, wasn't he like 27 or something when this when this movie was made? Like he was some obscenely young age. He was like an eighth or ninth grade. Like he wasn't like a boomer like Scorsese making a movie about like the rise and fall of, you know, the 60s and 70s. Um, I mean, maybe he was, but like not from that perspective, not from having lived it, you know, I think the first DVD commentary I ever listened to was the Boogie Nights DVD commentary. Mm. And I remember like he opens it with being like, all right, everybody listen up. Like, this is how I learned how to make movies was from wow. the commentaries on laser discs. Like, <laughs> this is like, this is like how I learned how to do it. So listen to me. And he's like one of those kids that probably like Spielberg at like seven had like a camera of some sort and was just like in everyone's faces, like making stuff, like learning how to make stuff, whatever, mm-hmm. and had a false but, you know, tr- true historical but false personal nostalgia from like when the 70s, you know, turned into the 80s and movies started just being like mass market, whatever. Because also when he stopped being a child, which might have something to do with it. Oh, you don't say. These things overlap sometimes. <laughs> a coming of age tale. Is he the same age as Dirk Diggler? I think he's like eight to ten years younger than Dirk Diggler. But, you know. Two boys who love Han Solo. (laughs) (laughs) And karate. (laughs) Yeah, I guess the like intense boyishness of Mark Wahlberg is is amazing. I agree with what everybody said. And it's also funny to compare it, Nona, as you said, to later Wahlberg and stuff like The Happening, where he has to play a sensitive guy. And he's like, I've forgotten how to access sensitive guy. It's been wiped from my hard drive. So I'm just going to do like this this voice like I'm talking to a wounded animal and that should do it. And also like IMDB trivia tells me that Leo DiCaprio was offered this role and couldn't do it because of Titanic. Whoa. I know. But then he he had just been in the basketball diaries with Mark Wahlberg and he was like, (gasps) this kid could do it. And he ended up being cast. Imagine Mark Wahlberg with that Boston accent just being Jack and Titanic. (laughs) I would love Boston Jack and Titanic. Listen, I think Leo is all wrong for this movie. Like there's some sort of like 
erudition to him that he would just totally ruin this movie. Like you have to be like a like an affable meathead, you know? Yeah. You have to be someone who would go on to start a chain called Wahlburgers, I would argue. <laughs> exactly. I just can't believe Mark Wahlberg pulled this role up. To your point, no, no, about like what he'd become to what he had been. Like he, he, this, this man has committed, had committed two hate crimes in his teenage. Like he committed two hate crimes. It's unbelievable, just like unbelievable that there was this weird window in which he pulled off like such an incredibly soulful, seemingly legitimately vulnerable role. But the, the things that he did are so hard to stomach. And then like the like how tender the I still find the character in this movie. I don't know. I can't I I have a I have great difficulty connecting them. Do you find that like uncanny that you can like see yes. that? Yeah, that you can see that embodied by the person who acted so violently towards random vulnerable individuals. Well, I think that, but then also that there's so many echoes of his history in this role. Like there is a hate crime committed against him right. in this movie. And that hate crime happens at a time when he's doing a lot of drugs to the excess similar to the ones he was doing when he committed the hate crime. Like, but I, I have great difficulty thinking like Boogie Nights would come out now without a bunch of people for very good reason going, oh, wait a second. Like the parallel years are. Then like there's a question of how do we honor the reality of that? And also like can people be redeemed and like have a full life despite doing something horrible? And also does that full life have to involve making so many millions of dollars in like movies where you save an oil tanker or whatever? Well, maybe it's just me, but I just actually don't think the Boogie Nights role is that it's not that hard for me to reconcile. Mm. Yes, he's raw and vulnerable and ultimately sweet, but he's also extremely insecure and impressionable and he is violent at some points and scary at times. Yeah. And he like, you know, has um, an addictive personality and gets on the wrong track and hangs out with the wrong people. And I'm not sure Mark Wahlberg has that sweet, sensitive side, but he certainly has the insecure and violent side that a lot of men do. So I don't think it's that much of a stretch. No, I, I agree with that part. I just assume like to, in order to play the arc, mm -hmm. he needs to access both. But also, he's never accessing, like, well-adjusted person. It's either, like, cute little baby or scary guy who can't slow his roll. Because yeah, he's always, like, and, yeah. like, Amber says the words little baby so many times that it's like, I get it. I get it. He's a little baby. I know. I can see it. Maybe that was just their direction. It wasn't, like, vulnerability. It wasn't, like, it was just, like, be a baby. And he was like, I can do that. <laughs> It's the vulnerability of being a baby. That, and, yeah. And, like, yeah, in the script, it's just, like, Mark Wahlberg, little baby. <laughs> I just find his presence in culture generally just confounding. Yeah. Uh -huh. He's like a, I was going to say the thinking, this is not what I meant, but I was going to say the thinking man's kid rock. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I mean some version of that, but I don't exactly know how I want to say it. <laughs> I don't know why I think that's so funny, <laughs> but I do. <laughs> Can we talk about Amber mom stuff? 
I, that, that like call that her kid Andrew places at the beginning of the movie asking for Maggie and, and like people around her don't even know that that's her real name. And she just like misses this call from a kid that she clearly loves, but doesn't know how to love and doesn't know how to prioritize is just so heartbreaking to me. And she's a very sweet person, but she just ultimately is so racked with shame that she can't just show up for her child. It's one of the darkest parts of the movie, honestly. Yeah. Right. And as a result, she shows up for everybody else, which I find extremely, I mean, there's something strangely relatable about that. We're like, you can't show up for your primary personal task, but you can absolutely show up for everybody else around you who needs it. And so like you just give yourself yeah. away in that way. Well, because they're in the same world together and I don't think she knew how to reconcile worlds, you know, like she didn't know how to drop everything and say, hey, my son is coming over. We can't have drugs and porn going around. It's clear that she just like didn't know how to compartmentalize parenting, I guess. If, you know, you see somebody who's needy, who's within the context of your world, then it all becomes easier for her, you know. That's a great point. Yeah, it's such a beautiful performance. And I love how this movie, I feel like, shows in various facets kind of people in the rest of the world being prejudiced against people involved in the adult film industry. And I wonder what you both think about the attitude this movie has about porn, because to me, it feels like ambivalent. And I guess maybe it's not even really about Mm -hmm. porn. It's about filmmaking, which is certainly what Paul Thomas Anderson knows better, I assume. But yeah, I feel like it's saying like, you know, porn is a world and there's, you know, access to drugs and sort of, I I don't know, I feel like it's an indictment of the entertainment industry. And it's saying that porn doesn't really make the entertainment industry worse than it already is, is kind of the read I have. Yeah, like I, I feel like actually the message is that the sex itself is kind of beside the point. Like the sex is the innocent, pure part. Yeah. And it's all the other stuff that fucks people up. You yeah. know, it's the drugs, it's the wealth. It's like the fact that they're chasing this image. And then like when it comes to porn and sex, like that's the like wholesome part, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. The thing about Amber, it's interesting. It's like, you know, with Buck, for instance, he's trying to have this business and he's coming up against the discrimination of the world. And we're supposed to think, God, that's so unfair. That's so fucked up. But Amber, like, I don't consider that to be discrimination. I consider that to be, she didn't act right. Like there was a presumably a kid there where there was partying and drugs yeah. and all that stuff. I feel like um, she's guilty and she's also wrongfully accused at the same time because it feels like in that custody hearing that we get that like it's persuasive simply for her ex-husband to say that she's in pornography. So like naturally, right. no matter what she does, if she stays in that industry, it seems like she's still going to be accused of a thing that maybe she you know, has done, but doesn't need to keep doing forever. But it doesn't matter because the industry itself is being stigmatized, it feels like. And I and, and to the point of like discrimination, I, I do love what they end up doing with Buck, who's like, I haven't heard it said as well as you just said it, which is, I don't think at the end of the day, he has any feelings about pornography itself as a subject. Right. But some of the stuff that he illustrates as a result of like, 
what's more or less dysfunctional, like Eddie Adams home where this right. shit happens or, uh, you know, this like porn house where everyone is finding like a makeshift family. So like, I don't think yeah. he's saying like anything positive or, or negative. I do think he's largely talking about film, but I right. do like some of the things that he does. They do through the plot end up saying about discrimination, like the stuff with Buck trying to get his own business, doing everything right, being like, literally just tell me what to say to be in compliance. I will do it. I will do anything I can to like get out of this business and like start this business that I want. And he's trapped by the stigma of the, of, of just even having been involved with the business, which might also be like a good, like porn discrimination might be a good cover for whatever, like racial discrimination might be happening on the loan end too there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think it's also a really interesting reminder that you can get all the AVN awards. You can like be this like big fish in this small pond. But then when you enter the real world, people treat you like shit, even though you're like a star in in the context of your own milieu, you know? Yeah. Great point. Yeah. And then I think that makes porn interesting as one of the many subcultures, including like roller skating and stamps. Um, where you can like because you're the king of your specific little subculture it means you're a laughing stock to normal people who aren't the king of anything probably yeah well definitely that guy at the bank was not the king of anything <laughs> we never see buck in a porn like he's the only guy I know, that we I was don't just see thinking that. they're like sorry buck we needed those 12 minutes for the little bill plot exactly <laughs> i would have much rather seen him in porn yeah well, it's, it's so interesting now because like the gateway to getting into porn is so much less substantial, like geographically based. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's like I know, I, you know, I know I know people in porn who either they do it and it's like part of a subscription thing or they still work within the studio system or it's like sort of like a mix of the two or whatever. But like your ability to like not have to like travel x amount of miles sort of like be based in a particular place like leave stuff but whatever or fuck in front of like 30 people right like all of the like i just can't imagine what would have had to happen in order to participate in this in this specific like entertainment ecosystem right in order to like get to that place like in, in any actually like any entertainment ecosystem that that equated like you being on a film that's projected somewhere like so much stuff would yeah. have to happen in order for that to happen so many guys have to show up and do a job and do teamstery stuff right whereas like porn now like your ability to like participate in that is so much more accessible that like this idea that there has to be like some like defining moment or you had to get away or whatever doesn't seem like it's as as relevant like a, a kickoff point as it is now like it's not right. like the life was terrible had to get away from the life had to find a family it's just like i have an inter internet connection and i can this is like an easy way to make some money and i like how it relates to my sexuality mm -hmm. right right well, I don't think um, this was represented in any particular character, but there are several different points in which people mention, oh, yeah, I've seen all your movies or right. like I'm a big fan of your movies. And so I think we have to remember that porn was like in theaters at this point right. and you had to like go and see them and there weren't that many of them. There weren't like millions of clips on Pornhub. They were just like a few dozen movies that like came out every year that you probably like all saw, you know, right. while we don't 
see a character that's just like, I want to get into porn. We do see that there like is an incentive to just sort of like, well, actually, I don't know. It's like, it's partly that he's fleeing a bad home life, but also like he wants to be a star and like he'd seen Jack Horner's movies. Like he was a fan and he was going all the way from, from Torrance to the San Fernando Valley for like a reason, you know? So I think he actually embodies both. Hmm. And extremely well said. Can we talk more about Roller Girl? Absolutely. You know, she's very sort of like light and cotton candy for most of the movie. And then she like goes beast mode on that guy who made fun of her in high school. But like, I really don't get too much of a sense of her interiority or her motivations. And, And given how iconic she is, I really wish there was more about her and less about little Bill and his his marital problems. Yeah. Do you think that's part of why she's iconic is because we know nothing about her? Mm, that, yeah. She's like all style, no substance kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, she's like ed- enigmatic. I'm not saying it was a good choice, but I'm wondering if like part of why <laughs> she's I- iconic is because like she can fucking kick someone's face in without falling over yeah. a great talent while on roller skates. I noticed that. But yeah, I wonder if like that's if that's part of why she's so, you know, she's like a, like a Michael Myers in the first movie quality. <laughs> she is a slasher a villain. Point. Yeah, she was shamed <laughs> for having sex. And look at what happened. <laughs> the parent-child relationships in this are funny. And I feel like she doesn't get as characterized as she would have if she wasn't like Dirk's female counterpart. They're like the son and daughter, I feel like, of this couple. Yeah. And I guess, I guess they both go full circle. So it makes sense that she's like still living there cleaning her room and he's like still giving himself pep talks in the mirror. Yeah. Right. So it's like they're, they survived, but they're also stuck. And like, do you think they're going to move forward or not? It's up to you. The scene that is, uh, that's, I have found affecting since having first seen this movie and still do, I was surprised to find that I still do is the scene where Jack visits the Colonel in prison. Yeah. And then he reveals that like, Oh, and there's this other thing. And essentially like without ever saying so explicitly, like suggests that there's been child pornography found at his house. Yeah. First of all, for a movie that Burt Reynolds fucking hated actively while making it. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. For him actively hating the movie in real time to show up in that scene as like, I feel the disappointment he's feeling and like immediate disconnect he's feeling sort of in real time when he's receiving that information. Mm. You know, they're like, there's a particular amount of scumbaggery we're fine with, but there are some lines that like the old school, the quote old school guys won't cross feels like itself a bit of like a, a convenient bit of nostalgic retrospective yeah. viewing. But I, I don't know. I really, I really do love that scene. And I love how, like when we can no longer hear him because Burt Reynolds has, has hung up the phone and you can see him mouthing like, are, are you my friend? It's just so fucking d- both like dirty and heartbreaking at the same time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's so mm-hmm. simple. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's so simple. I love seeing someone fallen in a movie. I really love it. Um, should we do the daddy? Yeah, let's do the daddy. All right. Well, we know that that sad guy who doesn't shave well enough is Eddie Adams' father. Don Cheadle becomes a father. Don oh, Cheadle yeah. becomes a father. To the Olympic oh, to the fever baby. baby. 
Oh yeah. my god. Yeah. So we know that there this movie's rich in fathers, but who in your view is the daddy? Uh Nona? I mean, obviously Burt Reynolds, right? <laughs> yeah. I was thinking about this and I think a distant second is Dirk Diggler's dick, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Tell us more. The penis. Well, because, you know, <laughs> Dirk himself is like clearly a child. We've been talking about this. He is not anyone's daddy, even as Brock Landers, like he can't hope to be the daddy. But there is one part of him that's very commanding, very sure. It's his one special thing. You know, it gets him far and everything it touches turns to gold and that's his dick. So I feel like, you know, if you're not going to accept the daddy being Burt Reynolds, which I don't know why you would ever do that, then you have his dick. Love it. I like how he says to his mother, I have things you don't know about. And your mom for sure knows about your monster cock. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, she had to give birth to it. I'm just going to agree. I like this is a movie about... Burt Reynolds being everyone's daddy like and and he does it so well again like uh, for a person who had trouble with the role and had trouble with the role after the fact and had trouble on set or whatever I've I never I've never read that in this performance I think it's tremendous I think Burt Reynolds himself is great in this role and I think the character obviously he's doing it out of some self-interest but also he's helping to provide a home for a lot of different people and i think that's nice jackie horner's home for kids who fuck good and who want to learn how to fuck good (laughs) (laughs) beautiful yeah who's yours sarah so i'm not going to disagree that burt reynolds is the daddy but i'm also gonna bring up this movie like magnolia has two of the great phillips Philip Seymour Hoffman and Philip Baker Hall. And they both have roles where they effectively get to do nothing. And they both are incredible. I mean, Philip Baker Hall has an important scene, but he has one scene, I think. And Philip Seymour Hoffman has one plot point. And aside from that, he's just like there for the whole movie. And he does so much with just like what he's given and is wonderful and amazing. And I love our two departed Phillips. Yeah. I love Scotty. Mm. I can't believe we haven't even talked about Scotty. I love Scotty yeah. so much. Poor Scotty. Scotty talk about vulnerable. Scotty is just such, such a heartbreaker in this movie. Scotty bought a whole car so he could have a little kiss. Oh. I know. Been there. <laughs> And Dirk was like pretty nice about it, you know, to be fair. No, no doubt. I mean, it's, it, it makes sense that he, that Paul Thomas Anderson eventually find his, like finds a real muse relationship with Philip Seymour Hoffman and not with um, Mark Wahlberg forever and the rest of his career. Yes. The boy with the giant soul, Philip Seymour Hoffman. That's beautiful. Uh, Nona, thank you so much for, for hanging with us. Thank you. This is so fun. This is the best. This is the best Friday night. Nona, if anyone has some uncomfortable baggage about sexuality, has anyone written an, a nice book about the history of why do is that a thing recently? <laughs> <laughs> why, yes, I have, Sarah. I just came out with a book. It's called Bad Sex. I talk briefly about the porn industry, but it's mostly about the unfinished business of the sexual revolution when it comes to female desire, and you guys should all check it out.
All right, everybody, that's it for this week's episode of You Are Good, a feelings podcast about movies. Thank you so much to Carolyn Kendrick for producing and editing this episode. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for providing the beats that make the episode sound so sweet. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Find us on Twitter for now. Find us on Instagram for a longer period of time, for sure. You Are Good Pod. Find us on Patreon or Apple subscriptions. And I think that's it. That's it for this week's episode. Join us next week for The Santa Claus with Siri Dahl.